So without further ado, shall we crack on with the show? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yes. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, where we're going to be talking about all things moon-related. My name is Andy, and I'm the self-appointed moon expert, and I'm here with my co-host Rick, who is the every man who will ask every man questions. How you doing, Rick? Uh, I'm alright, yes. How's it going? Not bad, thank you. I'm just going to run through what's going to be on this show. So we're going to be talking about the results of Changi 5, that's the Lunar Return Mission. Uh, a recent study has looked at how the moon affects your sleep, so we'll be talking about that for a bit. And in foreign moon news, we're going to talk about the recovered lost moons by our own N3, so thanks for that N3. Some radio signals that have been detected on Jupiter's moon of Ganymede some puzzling signals that have been found on Saturn's moon of Rhea, and how Saturn's moons might be causing its axial tilt. And we'll cover a little bit of very local moon news before ending on And The Next Moon Is. So that's what we'll be talking about on this episode, which is recorded on the 30th of January, so any moon-related news after this uh, will be in next show. Anyways, how are you doing, Rick? Uh, I said I was all right at the beginning of the show. I, I lied. I think I've got COVID again. <laughs> um, um, again again yeah that's it well every time since the the beginning of the crisis every time i've got like a, a sore shoulder or a, a bad arm or something it's like oh is that covid however this time like in did i tell you in november i woke up coughing one morning and uh thought oh yeah I've, uh, there's covid you know and i went and had a test and it wasn't but then i felt a bit grim and just stayed off work for a bit not too bad, but it's just that, oh, the tests aren't 100% reliable. I'll, you know, stay away. I've got something. And then it kind of went on. I just carried on with life. And then, you know, long COVID, where you've got slightly long-term symptoms of COVID. Oh, like uh, shortness of breath, your stamina goes when you're running, that kind of thing. Yeah. So basically, in the last week or two, uh, I've had sort of a shortness of breath, and then that was two weeks ago, and I had that for a week, and then this week I've had a metallic taste in my mouth. Oh. So uh, basically, it's it's this weird sort of long, long COVID. It's like I've got, and also I've had fatigue as well. So it's not not bad. Just feels slightly five, ten percent worse than normal, and that's how it's affected me anyway. Uh, but I did uh, one of those lateral flow tests as well, and that says no, you've not got COVID, nor nor have you ever had it so i've got all the symptoms of covid of having had covid in probably november <laughs> but i've not got it according to any test yeah i think that's cleared it up uh well yes clearly <laughs> I, I did exactly the same test that you had the antibody test which kind of indicates that i've not had it either so that's good news have you got like a rare blood type or something i don't know but i would say that the antibody test is 50% false negative rate. So it's quite high. If that lateral flow test says you've got COVID or you've had it, it's like, yeah, you, you've pretty much got it. But if it says you haven't, it's like, well, 50-50, it's right. Oh, okay. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty high false negative. It is. I mean, so you wouldn't use it as a brilliant diagnostic type tool to do it perfectly, but it's useful when you're doing a survey of a population. As long as you adjust for 50% of the answers are sort of wrong and you know, well, we know 10 people have tested say positive so we'll just double that to 20 you can get around it so that's what they say on the pack don't take this as sort of a super individual test but it's really useful for a population hmm okay well this is the thing i was always bad at statistics and the way that you phrase it makes me go oh yeah that that that, that makes sense but if i was to actually be on the other side of this trying to read this up myself in the cold hard mathematical terms i'd be like i have no idea what's going on <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did I did read it because when it came back negative, I was like, well, I've got a metallic taste in my mouth and I've got, you know, shortness of breath and what have you. It's like, I'm pretty sure this is wrong. And so I did look at it. But yeah, the, so there are a few commentators I've seen on YouTube and so on just say, oh, it's 50-50. You might as well toss a coin. You might as well on the false positive... But actually, if the false negative is zero, so let's say if you've got COVID, it will be 50-50 whether it gets it right. But if you've not got COVID, it will be 100% correct, for example. Then that's still actually a useful test. Because if I handed you two test kits 
and said, you know, test kit A will never give a false positive and test kit B will never give a false negative, you could combine those two test kits to create a, like, a perfect test. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Even though individually they're both not perfect, but you can you can put them together. So there, there is a bit of uh, misrepresentation saying, oh, it's 50-50, you might as well flip a coin. It's a like, well, actually there is this other side to it and, and it can be used as part of a useful scientific trial. Yeah, and I know people will say that, like, oh, well, if you get those two tests that one will always give a false positive and one will always give a false negative, but you combine the two to get the perfect answer, why don't they just combine the two tests into one test? You need to make sure that these tests are easy enough to follow and can be done by the general public by just reading simple instructions and interpreting the results. Because when I got the kit and I was like, okay, got to put the buffer in here, got to wait this long, the instructions were so simple. And that's the hardest part, making this stuff idiot proof. Because you can set up the most accurate test possible, but can the person receiving it conduct the test without help, without assistance, and be able to follow the instructions to make sure the test is conducted perfectly? Probably not. They don't have scientific training. I don't have lab training, but I was able to follow the antibody test. Yeah, uh, I mean, I did did look at that and almost get it wrong because you've got to dab a bit of blood in one hole, which is not the hole labelled B. Um, it's, it's, it's the hole labelled S. And then you've got to put um, yeah your buffer solution in the, the other hole labelled B for buffer. Okay, fine. That almost threw me. But also, just the, the practicalities of, well, they might not be the same test as well. So one might be stick a Q-tip into the back of your throat, and one is <clears throat> like a blood sample. So yes. you, you just can't merge them in case you've got some, I don't know, jabby, stabby Q-tip of going go and stab <laughs> the back of your throat with, a, uh, with this knife Q-tip. Oof. Like, even the, the, like, swab in the throat, not for me. I'll do it if I have to, but that that's uncomfortable. But having, having to draw blood from it? Hell no. Just to make sure, just don't do that. That's a test we made up. <laughs> do not. Do not jab the back of your throat. Uh, also, I'm sorry to be talking about COVID. Uh, and, I like, I know people will listen to podcasts as a form of escapism. And also, talking about COVID will instantly date the podcast. So you, well, then again, we're talking about moon news that happens at certain times, which will also date it. Like, it's something that's happening now, but I am aware that there is virtually no escape from COVID. Everything is COVID, COVID, COVID. It was, it's like the new Brexit of just Brexit dominated the news for two years, and now it's COVID dominating the news for two years. There is literally no escapism, so I'm sorry for contributing to that. Although, yeah, I wouldn't have contributed, but because uh, it did lead to this scientific fact that I do want to get across that these tests are not just 50-50, as some commentators are saying them, and they're useless, and you might as well flip a coin. Uh, so I did sort of lead into that. That's the, the key takeaway from that one. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's always sensationalist headlines, uh, some of which we'll talk about in this show. So without further ado, shall we crack on with the show? Yes, please. Last show we talked about Changi 5 returning lunar samples to Earth and I think the probe landed on Earth as we were recording because it landed at 6 o'clock Wednesday the 16th of December and I think we were actually recording a podcast then so I, that's why it wasn't included in the show even though the latest episode came out after Changi 5 had actually landed and returned the samples. So that's why it wasn't included then. Uh, but yes, Changi 5 has returned four pounds worth of lunar material, which was dug up from two metres underground using an onboard drill, which is pretty incredible. Something that I learned about when it went through the atmosphere, because it was such a speedy mission. And when you compare it to the likes of the Apollo mission, where it took like a week to go to the moon, a couple of days to come back, this was there and back in the course of a week. Um, it was doing it at ridiculously high velocities and also at like speeds unsafe for humans. And when the probe returned to Earth, it did this thing called skipping in the atmosphere where it got rid of some of the extra energy. So it like bounced off the atmosphere a little bit to kind of slow it down and get rid of some of the excess energy. So then it could go through the Earth's atmosphere at a slower speed, which would then get it to Earth safely. But this is like precious cargo and it's just like batting itself against the atmosphere. <laughs> is it like when the uh, delivery driver throws your parcel across your drive and skims it? So before it lands at your front door. Assuming you have a pond in your front garden, then yes. <laughs> no, no, just throw it along the drive. Just go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Here you go. 
Uh, maybe if it was like a newspaper delivery, it's like, ah, it's, it's fine, it'll just, it's only paper. Uh, it's just rocks. It's just gonna hit other rocks, doesn't matter, does it? But it returned two kilograms worth of lunar material from the Mons Rumpka volcano, extinct volcano, which is one of the younger areas of the moon, younger by about 1.2 billion years ago, as opposed to the other lunar samples that were brought back by the Apollo missions, which were 3 billion years old. So the idea is we have new samples from a different bit of the moon, which we know is younger, therefore it will help us answer some more questions. And in the paper published, or the articles that I was reading, it said, at least 27 fundamental questions can be answered by these samples. They didn't list the questions, it just listed the topics, and they are lunar chronology, petrogenesis, which is the origin and formation of rocks, regional settings, geodynamic and thermal evolution, regolith formation, constraint on the lunar dynamo status, unraveling the deep mantle properties, assessing the prosolarum, I think that's how it's pronounced, of creep terrain surfaces, and creep here is spelt K-R-E-E-P, which... Uh, right, right. The K stands for potassium. R-E-E -E is rare earth elements and P is phosphorus. So that's why it's known as creep. Basically, everything I just listed off there can be summed up as rocks. <laughs> yeah. All of these are just very fancy words for rocks. Like you have Pokemon, but within those Pokemon, you've got water, fire type, flying type, bug type, but they're all essentially Pokemon. These are all essentially study of rocks, just very, very different aspects of it. Apart from regional settings, which I think is, it's when your keyboard starts putting the wrong punctuation marks. <laughs> which, yeah, I'd, yes. I'd be interested to know why that suddenly occurs. So if they can study that from moon rocks, yes, I, I would like to know why my uh, keyboard does occasionally just set itself to US standard. <laughs> I think that's because you have a Linux machine. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. <laughs> which is just... Computing on hard mode. Yeah. Why do you want an easy computer? Although I would say I'm not proper Linux, I use Ubuntu, which is like the friendly version of Linux. I think the friendly version of Linux is Windows, but hey-ho. Although, yeah, just, just to say uh, well done to everyone at Ubuntu. You know when your computer sort of dies, a uh, Windows computer just gradually dies and it, it's gone and it, everyone's saying, you know, put it out of its misery, get a new one. You can install Linux on it and it'll go for another 10 years quite happily. So, oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing amazing. So uh, yeah, well done to everyone at Linux for uh, not installing all sorts of nonsense onto the computer. I will talk more about computing when we're talking about the uh, recovery of the moons, but this is genuinely an incredible recovery from the Changi missions in general, and China's space program is, it never ceases to ama amaze me. U22 and Changi 4 are still going and still beaming images back to Earth. Changi 5 was a like resounding success, just went and got the samples and brought them back within the course of a week. I don't know what Changi 6 is going to be doing. In fact, let me have a search for that now. So Changi 6 is going to be a sample return mission, but from the South Pole of the Moon. Changi 7 is going to send a drone to the Moon. It's going to have a lander, a rover, and a mini flying probe. So they're sending a drone to the Moon. <laughs> Excellent. That is so cool. How does that work then? Because I assume it's not propellers, because there's no um, there's no air. It says mini flying probe, which to me indicates a drone because it's not an orbiter. So what it might do is propel itself up and hover, have some sort of very light propellant. Because if it's very light and the gravity on the moon is very low, it could just float for a bit with just minimal propulsion. And there is an atmosphere on the moon, although it's very, 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 very thin. So it's practically negligible. But anyway, then you've got Changi 8, which uh, will be a lander, a rover, a flying detector, as well as a 3D printing equipment to try and utilize something called in situ resource utilization, which translates as using the stuff on the moon as fuel for the 3D printer. So using the regolith, putting it into the machine, and then seeing if you can print out some useful things. That is amazing. And that's aimed for 2027. That's Changi 8. But so far, all of these missions have been a success. There hasn't been a single failure. And if you look at the Apollo and the lunar missions, 
way, 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 way back when, and you get up to the nice little table, it's all success, partial success, failure, partial success, success, failure, 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 because everyone was rushing with it. Whereas China has been doing this since 2007, so they're just learning and developing and taking their time with it. Whereas NASA, thankfully, have pushed back the Artemis missions again, so I don't think they're going to aim for 2024 anymore, which is good, because that means that they can do all the safety things that they need to do to get to the moon. That's good. Do I win a bet then? Yeah. Wee. So in in our ongoing thing I'll of open the betting book and see what I've won. Tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna add one to the betting book that every single one of the Changi missions is gonna be a success. Oh, hang on. How many missions are there? So there's another three to go. Five so far, all of which have been a success. Okay. Rick doesn't think the US will launch for the moon in 2024. So is that accepted as correct? Yeah, you win that one. Hazard. So Andy thinks... So update us on the betting book. Andy thinks Changi 4 will last a thousand Earth days. Andy thinks Russia will have a successful soft lander before the US landing. And Andy thinks all eight Changi missions will be a success. I'm just going to do a quick update on YouTube 2 and just have a look if it's still going. Yep, still going. And it's on 757 days, so another 250 to go. Okay, so in December-ish. Yeah, about then. Cool. That'll be your Christmas present. You win a bet. Yeah! <laughs> so do you have any uh, questions about the Lunar Samples and Changi 5? Uh, no, that's good. So I'll, I'll see what they, they prove about uh, geology rather than the 27 fundamental questions. Basically all geology. It's identifying the pieces of the puzzle and putting them into place. So in terms of where did the moon come from? There's lots of theories that have a lot of evidence to back it up. And this is adding evidence to some of those theories. Do you have trouble sleeping, Rick? I do. As do I. And there could be a reason for this, and that reason could be the moon. Ah, is that what keeps waking me up? Ah, uh, well, I have trouble sleeping because my mind is like a beehive, just constantly buzzing away, and I'm thinking of all the bits of the videos that I need to do and <laughs> animation. But there could be another reason why I can't sleep due to the presence of the moon. And some scientists have done uh, some sleep studies in Argentina and they looked at three different indigenous communities over the course of two months. Now, one of these communities had no access to electricity, so therefore it was all natural light, moonlight, starlight and sunrise. So they're purely left to natural light. Then you had another one which had limited access to electricity, so there will be some artificial lights going on in the evening, but mostly it'll be natural light. And then another that had full access to electricity, so very much like us. So you had three different groups. All of them returned the same results, that sleep duration changed between 20 and 90 minutes, and bedtimes varied between 30 and 80 minutes a few days before a full moon. The quote in the article, in each community, the peak of participants sleeping less and staying up later occurred in a three to five day period leading up to full moon nights. And the opposite occurred on the nights leading up to a new moon. So when there's a full moon, they're staying up later and sleeping a bit less. But when it's the opposite of a full moon, as in a new moon, that's when they would go to sleep earlier and sleep a bit more. Yeah, across all three. I can see why it's happening in somewhere with no electricity, but you'd be doing well to know when the full moon is unless you're going out and deliberately looking up these sort of things because most people stay in in the evening. Yeah, exactly. And don't forget the exact time of a full moon can happen in the afternoon. It doesn't happen at night. Like when you're, it's a full moon at, say, three in the afternoon and you're looking up at night, it still looks like a full moon. Uh, just not a hundred percent full moon. You wouldn't notice it with without a telescope or a decent pair of binoculars. But yeah, it's interesting that it's three to five days leading up, and that it's affecting all people, regardless of how much electricity they have and how much artificial light they have. So it could be something to do with the moon's effect on the tides and the weather and how it ebbs and flows throughout the months. And it, it's it's a weird one. And ultimately, the study could not establish causality, which roughly translates as, we've observed this, we know it's from the moon, but we don't know why it's doing this. Yeah, I mean, it could be from all the people that are in the no electricity area, just they're staying up late because the moon's right and they're phoning all the people in the electricity area. You're right, <laughs> we're up late. Do you want to chat? Could be that. Uh... <laughs> 
Yeah, it could well be. But, <laughs> there you go, sorted. Um, I'd like to see this, yeah, replicated in a like a major city where there's just lights constantly on and and there's no concept of day and night. Would Seattle count as a major city? Yes. Because in an attempt to corroborate their findings, the researchers compared the results to similarly collected data from 464 Seattle-based students studying at the University of Washington. They found the same oscillations in sleep patterns. Wow. Although, admittedly, student sleep patterns are like four, <laughs> sleeping from like four in the morning till uh, yeah, four in the afternoon or something. So. But using your statistics to like, you've got all that random chaos in the data, but you could kind of withdraw that. If you know of that, Katie, you can map for it. And then if it's 464, you've got some decent averages there. And if they're finding the same patterns in a major city and in these three communities within, within Argentina, then there is something going on here. But just don't know what. Yeah, no, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there was something deep inside the human psyche, some sort of hormonal rhythms that have made it like evolutionary beneficial to be more alert on the uh, the nights that are light, and we've never quite lost that cycle. Yeah, the hormone cycle to do with sleep is like circadian rhythm. That's the one. You're right. There has to be something there. I just can't put my finger on it, and neither can these scientists. But it's interesting that data taken in different continents points to the same source. So all in all, uh, sounds quite interesting, but it's not conclusive. Yeah, that applies to pretty much every story we talk about on the Moon <laughs> podcast where, oh, we found something interesting. Don't know what it is, but could be the Moon. So we're going on to foreign moon news now, where this is the part of the show where we talk about moons of the solar system that do not belong to Earth, hence foreign moons. And this is actually a bit of follow-up, where N3 has had their recovered lost moons confirmed by the NPC. Hey, well done, N3. Yes, NPC uh, standing for Minor Planet Center. So four of the moons have been recovered. They're S2003, J23, J12, J4, and J2. That's four out of the five lost Jovian moons. And this was actually picked up as well by a website called Sky and Telescope, which is like uh, the website for amateur astronomers. And they interviewed N3 as well, which is fantastic. And also highlighted that this is an incredible achievement and that they are the first amateur astronomer to actually find these lost moons in the publicly available data. And the there's a nice interview there that talks about why N3 did what they did and the method they use as well, including all of the software, which, like Linux, is <laughs> software on hard mode. Yeah. Although I have used the Aladdin Star Mapper, and it's laid out quite nicely, but there's a lot of settings, and it's just information overload to begin with. Yeah, I did like your ranting about it, because I said, oh, oh, have you discovered a moon, or whatever, and you were sort of <laughs> saying, I've, I've discovered the settings menu or something, and I, I can make the screen go brighter. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I followed the steps, and I got the software that N3 recommended. I got the exact image that N3 found one of the moons in, or better yet, I used the ones that were already on Wikipedia, so I knew exactly what I was looking for. I think it was Tarvos, for example, which is a moon of Saturn that I'm doing a video on now. It was using CFHT data, so Canada, France, Hawaii telescope data, using an image that was taken at a certain night, so got that image, which was, I don't know, about 80 megabytes, which is in a weird file format, got the special software to open it, and it's just this mess of stars and grids and there's so much going on and I have no idea how you managed to do it N3 but bravo it's so tricky and there's got to be some settings in there that will balance the infrared light and remove the noise and help you identify moving objects but I for the life of me couldn't figure it out like, I think I'm just a bit of a pleb when it comes to this kind of thing and all scientific software is so niche you need to know exactly what to do to get the best out of it it's all so purpose-built and, and i'm used to just like microsoft word and paint <laughs> where it's just like, i want to make a table oh there's the table thing whereas this it's 
finding bits of sky that are so faint you need to know all the exact parameters and exactly what to look for it's it's very difficult ah excellent well done m3 that's all i can say and well done for confusing andy uh, yeah I, have you had a bash at trying to no i keep i keep meaning to just with i, I, <laughs> I have an excuse every month of why i haven't done stuff <laughs> this month legitimately i am job hunting because I'm, I'm out of work in uh, as every year as contract renewal runs around in march so january February is always job hunting month, but uh, maybe when things calm down, I'll have a look at this. But uh, yeah, you haven't sold it well, although it's now a challenge, I guess, <laughs> if, if Andy can't understand it. And you're ju- you're you're merely just a Windows person. What, what, could, yeah. what could a Linux person do with it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Sky and Telescope article will be a good guide for you. It helped me get to the next stage. I just need to actually sit down and play about with the settings. I, I should point out, I am easily confused. I read all of these scientific papers and I'll read the same paragraph four or five times and still not get it. So like, I, I'm probably not the best bar to measure all intelligence against because I am easily confused. I did like in the show notes, you said, oh, this, this news was picked up by Sky and Telescope. And I was like, oh, I've heard of Sky. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know telescope, but oh, wow, okay. But uh, no, it's sky and telescope, like horse and hound. Sticking with Jupiter for the next bit of foreign moon news, the Juno mission has detected an FM radio signal from Jupiter's moon of Ganymede. Oh, that's good. (laughs) They've got um, primitive life with a FM radio station. Yes, primitive life. A middle-aged white DJ going like, Hello, welcome to Radio (laughs) Jupiter. Traffic today on Ganymede is terrible. Take the bypass. Uh, Yeah, the first line of every article I could find on this quotes the NASA ambassador Patrick Wiggins, where he says, it's not ET, it's not aliens, it's a natural function. That's like the first line up front to highlight this is not aliens. He has to spoil it, old Patrick Wiggins, doesn't he? He just, a little fun, he's just there complaining. He's NASA's official party pooper and bubble burster. That's it. Him and his science. Yeah, yeah. Well, as he says, it's not ET, but more a natural function. And this natural function combines my least favourite aspects of physics, which is electromagnetics and quantum theory. Uh, Quantum theory is all well and interesting in sci-fi and quantum computing and parallel dimensions and Schrodinger's cat and all that kind of crap. But I find it so like hard to get my head around and electromagnetics is so mathsy that when you combine the two, I, I hated this aspect of physics. I just wanted to know about moons. I just <laughs> wanted to know about nuclear stuff. That's the stuff that interests me. But this really, it always threw me. So apparently this FM signal comes from a process known as cyclotron maser instability. And it's a process that occurs in electromagnetic fields where electrons within the field oscillate slower than their spin rate. Now, as is tradition with quantum physics, when you call a thing something like spin, it's not what you think it is. So when I say electron spin, you're imagining like a little ball of an electron spinning around. It's not what it is. In the same way that electrons don't have a mass. They, they have energy as opposed to mass because energy equals mass. And when we were doing like the maths around this and calculating, like putting out Feynman equations or whatnot and like calculating the mass of certain particles, they'd be like, okay, E equals MT squared, but let's just put the speed of light equals one. But why? <laughs> you can't just change constants like that, but apparently you can. Anyway, spin and I'm gonna get the definitions here in nice, easy terms. What is electron spin? Electron spin is a quantum property of electrons and is a form of angular momentum. The magnitude of this angular momentum is permanent, like charge and rest. So the mass of an electron is permanent. The charge of the electron, which is negative, is permanent and therefore an angular momentum of this electron is permanent. It can't be changed. So it's like a constant like pi or the speed of light. These are constants. So spin, it's just another property. Now, when they're oscillating, that's just them vibrating, moving up and down and they're oscillating in line with the electromagnetic fields. And in an electromagnetic field, like you know, the earth has a magnetic field and you get the nice picture of the earth with the big lines going from the North Pole to the South Pole. 
and you go like, okay, that's Earth with its magnetic field. So it has a direction of flow of charge and the electrons will oscillate or go around these magnetic fields, these electromagnetic fields. So cyclotron laser instability is when these electrons within the magnetic field oscillate slower than their spin rate. So going around slower than their constant value. I can't get my head around it, but apparently <laughs> apparently when this happens, like the radio frequency they give off, because they're always emitting some kind of frequency, the radio frequency is amplified. So it's kind of like a resonance. Do you know resonant frequencies? Uh, ish. Pretend I don't, for example. Okay, pretend you don't. <laughs> so you've got a bridge over a river and you've got an army marching over the bridge. So an army will march at at a certain frequency like that. If that frequency matches the resonant frequency of the bridge, the way it was built and all the materials that make it up have something called a resonant frequency. And if the army marching matches that resonant frequency, then the bridge will start to shake violently. And if it shakes violently, then it might actually cause some of the bolts to come undone, some of the welding to crack and the bridge to fall apart because you've matched the resonant frequency of it. On that, Andy, I'll give you the, the example my physics teacher gave to me. He was, uh, I think he was from Turkey, but he, he called himself from Kurdish because he didn't didn't accept the existence of or the non-existence of a Kurdish nation so he oh well so, okay no sorry Kurdistan so my physics teacher was from Kurdistan and uh, he said his brother had a bunch of sheep that they were taking over a rope bridge and he's got a f film of his brother going over this rope bridge with the sheep as the rope bridge sort of swings slightly all the sheep slightly get into step because they all put their right foot down at the same time and what have you and that causes the bridge to swing more to the left at the same time and so all the sheep put their left foot down and this keeps happening and gradually the bridge just goes um swings all over the place and his brother falls off now <laughs> I, I he was laughing at it i assume it's not like an indiana jones rope bridge over a big <laughs> big gorge and all this sort of sheep and his brother fell down and it was a, a relatively low bridge but there we go he was a character. Yeah, you can imagine if the bridge is um, swinging at a certain frequency and then you've got the sheep will walk at a certain way. So the bridge gives feedback to the sheep and then the sheep's walk gives feedback to the bridge and that, and that keeps going on and that will swing the bridge at a certain frequency. So yeah, that was, that was his explanation. Okay, I think <laughs> both of those are good layman's examples of what resonant frequency is. So I still can't explain in layman's terms, these bloody <laughs> EM fields and electron spin rates. And do you know what the annoying thing is? We've spent so long on this, and the article's only like three paragraphs, and it just comes down to, oh, some radio frequencies were amplified due to cyclotron maser instability on Ganymede as Ganymede went over Jupiter, and Jupiter's magnetic field interacted with Ganymede, and therefore amplified a radio signal which was detected by Juno. That's all that needs to be said, but we've got around in circles trying to explain resonant frequency. <laughs> yeah. What I took away from it was uh, the band name Cyclotron Maser Instability. <laughs> which... <laughs> that does sound like a, a prog rock or shoegaze. I'm pretty sure that's one of the bands you sent me recently in an email thread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sent you a lot of math rock, which in math core i think it's called with dillinger escape plan and Meshuggah and whatnot yes as background to that listeners um i came across well andy was going to a festival that had a thing called math rock and i was all oh, maths i'm interested in that but it was a sort of genre of very very progressive experimental rock and roll as it were uh, i think rock don't ever say no, rock and rock... roll i can't stand rock that and roll phrase. rock and roll without the roll so it's, <sighs> it's very uh, yeah rock my parents don't my parents don't understand me type music um <laughs> Um, but the parents can legitimately turn around and say, well, to be fair, we don't understand your music. It's not making any sense because it's all, I'd argue it's not music. It's a very, very self-indulgent sort of sounds uh, that, that has... Uh, I would argue technically competent. Yeah, technically competent, self-indulgent sounds. <laughs> yes, that's no, fair. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad if you're, if you're into sort of, you know, your experimental stuff. It, it wasn't sort of... 
Oh, I'm going on a long car journey. Uh, shall I listen to this math rock album? Probably not. Otherwise, I'll just drive into the central reservation as soon as I can. Um, uh, no. When I'm on a long journey, I will whack on between the buried and me or Dillinger Escape Plan because because those like really engage me and keep me awake so I could drive for longer. Okay, I'll, I'll try that. And if I die, I'll come back and haunt you. I guarantee you, Colours is a fantastic album, and don't you dare haunt me, Brick. <laughs> Well, in summary, there's an FM signal detected on Jupiter's moon of Ganymede. It's not aliens, it's some weird quantum stuff that none of us had explained properly. Sticking with weird signals on moons, but one that I can explain, Saturn's moon Rhea has a puzzling signal that was detected by Cassini, and there is now an explanation for this. So in 2017, Cassini was in the end of its mission, known as the Extended Extended Mission, that was the final mission of the Cassini probe, and it flew past Saturn's moon of Rhea, which is like an icy ball. Uh, it looks a bit boring to look at because there's just a few craters on the surface, it's just a big ball of ice. But Cassini detected a compound on it known as hydrazine, which is used in rocket fuel. It did this by a, a technique called photometry, where you look at the light reflected off the surface of a moon. And from this, you can determine all sorts of properties, like how well is that light reflected? Well, that all indicates something called the albedo, and like how reflective or how bright a surface is. It'll also tell you what materials are present on this surface by the light that has been absorbed by it. So you know the light that is going onto the surface because it's sunlight. What's reflected if there's certain bits of light missing, that's because they've been absorbed by certain compounds on the surface or certain materials. Therefore, if you know what bits are missing, you can determine what materials are on there. We do this on Earth all the time. It's like spectroscopy, I believe. Anyway, they did this on Rhea's surface and they found that hydrazine was present. And hydrazine is used in rocket fuel. So is it, is it free rocket fuel? It's It could be one of two things. It could be hydrazine or it could be chlorine. However, the materials in that part of the solar system, the materials on all the other Saturns of the moons and what's present in Saturn and Saturn's ring, chlorine isn't there. So the elements that make up hydrazine, hydrogen, carbon, a few other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head, those are all present to make hydrazine. It could be free rocket fuel if we manage to get to the surface, extract it, purify it, but all the chemical signatures that make up hydrazine are present on Rhea. So it's a chemical compound that requires a lot of elements, a lot of certain circumstances to for hydrazine to exist. It's like um, coal and diamonds are made of carbon. They're both made of carbon, but one requires a lot more pressure in order to get it into a diamond. So hydrazine, there's a lot of carbon, a lot of hydrogen about. You need a lot of certain constraints and a lot of conditions for it to become hydrazine. And by the way, it's only just been realised that it was hydrazine. At the time, they were like, I have no idea what this missing bit of the spectrum is. So they recreated it in the lab by observing how light bounced off various compounds and then they tried to match the data in the lab with what they found on Cassini and the two compounds that it could be were chlorine and hydrazine. So that's why they discredited chlorine because they're like well there's no way it could be out there whereas hydrazine could be there. Uh, one of the things it did point out in the article is Cassini uses hydrazine to orbit Saturn. So it's like, well, are you sure you just didn't detect your own <laughs> rocket fuel then? Yeah. But apparently it only used it in the thrusters and Cassini didn't use its thrusters near Rhea at all. So it couldn't be Cassini that put it there. One such cause is that the hydrazine floated over to Rhea from Titan. As in Titan created it, or... Uh... Well, Titan has a thick atmosphere. It's got methane lakes, right. which is hydrocarbon, and hydrazine is a hydrocarbon. So Titan's atmosphere, there could be hydrazine through some sort of chemical reaction on Titan, and it could have evaporated into the atmosphere, escaped the atmosphere, and floated over to Rhea. I mean, this happens with Saturn's rings all the time. Enceladus has lots of cryovolcanic activity, which you remember is an ice volcano, and that erupts stuff that goes into Saturn's surroundings and eventually goes into the rings. So a lot of the stuff that happens in the moons will contribute to Saturn's rings, and it turns out that they're all interacting with one another as well. So is um, Rio going to become like a, a service station for uh, interstellar travel where you go and pick up your fuel? Or actually, is it just better to go to Titan? Oh, well, that's a good question, actually. 
actually. I think it'd be easier to go to Titan than it would be to Rhea, just because there's clearly more resources on Titan than there would be on Rhea. Titan's also bigger, but you do have a big, thick atmosphere to contend with. It's a little harder to determine. Hmm, that's a good question. My gut would say go to Titan over Rhea, but Rhea would make a good Texaco. Why is it always service stations? Yeah, I was thinking that. This is like the, the umpteenth time I've mentioned them. I don't know, I, I just want a service station podcast, I guess. <laughs> that would be the saddest podcast. <laughs> yes, yes it would. Although, that said... It makes me feel so, like, adult and middle class when my conversation with friends will go like, oh, have you been to Gloucester service stations? Yeah. For those who don't know, Gloucester service station, it's like the Waitrose of service stations. It's by the same people who did some T-Bay service stations, which is, like, farm-produced, like, a proper butcher counter, really nice food in the cafe. It's not like, like a fluorescent prison like some service stations are, which are very functional. You go in, you get your Burger King, you go to the toilet, and then you go and it's all very depressing and very like linoleum floors and it's yeah. just and then you when you get out you breathe out it's just like yeah i can breathe now yeah most service stations in the uk are horrible but the one in the lake district called t-bay and the one in gloucester and there's one or two others in scotland as well which are really nice they have like organic farm shops they have these butcher counters they have these like really nice cafes and it's just like going to a nice cafe or a nice shopping center put it, put it this way as well they have no fruit machines or arcade you know it's that sort of place where it's just like no i once saw a man walk in there with football shorts and a football shirt and it's like you've, you've come to the wrong place mate it's just like <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> this is for the waitrose crowd yeah uh for, you'll, you'll be stared at and, and shunned I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that hostile. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's pretty sure there was a bit of tutting going on. Maybe Rhea can be a place for your elitist service station, yeah, Rick. Yeah, that was, if you could afford to get to Saturn, then you are worthy of these fancy brownies. Sorry, so do your conversations in Gloucester say, oh, have you been to Gloucester Services? People will comment that, oh yeah, I'm uh, going to go to Gloucester Services to get some, like, a really nice dinner yeah. for, like, Friday night because of the butcher counter. That'll have some fresh game on it or something like that. I think the idea, the rationale behind these service stations is you're clearly travelling to see someone, so therefore it allows you to pick up a nice gift along the way. Also, they're just like, well, we're serving the local community. We're near Cheltenham. We could put up another crap service station, but there's some disposable income nearby. Let's leech off them. Yeah, I, I do like the mentality of, look, we're going to put a service station here. Let's make an effort and make it nice at least. Yeah. Uh, there you go, Rick. There's your service station podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so the last item in foreign moon news is Saturn's tilt is caused by its moon. Uh, when I say Saturn's tilt, I mean its axial tilt. So you know how the Earth rotates on an axis of, I think, about 10, 15 degrees or something like that? Saturn also rotates on an angle as well, and its angle is 27 degrees at the moment, and this may have been caused by its moons. I thought Saturn was very, very big. How did the moons do that? So Saturn is big. For comparison, how much heavier is Saturn compared to the Earth? So Saturn is 95 times heavier than Earth. That's quite big, but Titan is quite a big moon, and it's also much further away from the sun than Earth is. If you have something massive near Saturn, that is going to affect it more at its position from the Sun than it will for Earth, because the gravitational pull of the Sun is much weaker at Saturn's position than it is at Earth's position. So, Titan is causing Saturn's tilt, as are some of the other moons as well, but Titan makes up like 96% of all the mass of the moons in the Saturn system. So even though Saturn's got 82 moons, most of these are tiny little bits of rock, whereas Saturn is massive. It's bigger than Earth's moon, I believe. It caused Saturn to tilt from about 4 degrees to 27 degrees. There were other things that caused Saturn to tilt as well over the course of a billion years or so, and that is like uh, something called a resonance with Neptune tune will have caused it to tilt. There's all sorts of gravitational shenanigans, but primarily it was Saturn's moons. Massive objects close to the gas giant have 
caused it to tilt over the last billion years or so. So it's taken time then. It wasn't sort of a... I, I was imagining like a moon knocked into it. It's one of those, oh, it's taken time and space, right? The question is, okay, so what? Titan caused Saturn to tilt in the last billion years. What does this tell us? Well, the solar system was formed 4.7 billion years ago. Saturn was formed 4 billion years ago. Saturn's rings are 100 million years old. And Titan has been around since Saturn formed. So in the last billion years or so, Titan is getting further and further away from Saturn, as are a lot of the other moons. So during this migration, Saturn has tilted by almost 30 degrees, by 27 degrees in the last billion years. That's quite significant, the fact that it didn't tilt for 3 billion years, and it was just happily doing its own thing. Even though Titan was there, it's only as Titan started to migrate outwards due to the presence of something that's caused the rings and something else that has, and, and like other things in the solar system like Neptune's resonance with Saturn and all of these other gravitational aspects. Only in the last billion years has Saturn started to tilt. So imagine Earth started to tilt 30 degrees over the last billion years. That would wreak havoc with the seasons. That would cause massive changes to the planet as we know it. Humans wouldn't exist yeah. if the Earth tilted 30 degrees over the last billion years or so. And the thing is, it's going to continue to tilt. These moons are going to migrate further and further away from Saturn and it's going to tilt further. In fact, Jupiter is going to tilt as well because of Jupiter's moons, the Galilean moons, and Uranus will tilt because of its moons as well. And these axes could increase from about 3 degrees to 30. So an increase of 30 degrees over the course of billions of years will massively disrupt these systems. Okay. So we're going into the world of this will take a billion years. So it's not something I need to worry about in my lifetime. Just checking. No, the, no, you're good. fine. And, and I'm just checking. Is this one of these things that the sun will blow up for this happens? Oh, that is a good point. I, I forget when. When is the sun going to blow up? <laughs> Four to five billion years from now. So Jupiter will continue to tilt. Saturn will continue to tilt over the course of the next couple of billion years. And it will probably keep tilting and the axial tilt will keep increasing until the sun blows up. Okay, I'm just checking because it was like that when the moon is getting away from us. Oh no, it could affect us. Oh, it's all right. The sun will blow up first. Um, you, you will barely notice the lack of moon. Um, so, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, similarly, uh, yes, if Saturn falls over, as the scientists call the axial tilt problem. I don't know. Could we then see the hexagon? As in... From so, Earth. Yeah, sorry, from Earth. So... <laughs> At the moment, if, if I look at Saturn, I don't think I can see a hexagon because it's on top or the bottom or something. Whereas if it tilts, it's like, oh, look, it's showing us it's hexagon. Do you know what? I don't know how Saturn would look from Earth. I don't think you'd be able to see the rings, like, side on. So to Google again, how would Saturn look from Earth? Okay, you could actually see the hexagon from Saturn now. Because we're at 30 degrees and Saturn's at like 30 degrees, when you look at it, you can see the North Pole of it. So you would be able to see the hexagon from it. Not the whole hexagon, but like you'd be able to tell it's there. Okay. And as it continues to tilt, you probably would be able to see it. Yeah, you're right. So this story about moons affecting Saturn's tilt, it's kind of obvious that something massive near Saturn would have some kind of gravitational effect on it. But what I find interesting is that Saturn is 4,000 times heavier than all of its moons combined. And so something 4,000 times lighter than Saturn has caused such a significant impact on it by making it rotate 30 degrees over the course of a billion years. I know it's a billion years, but that's still amazing that something so small next to something so big can have such a massive effect. Like, even the article calls it David versus Goliath, and I think that's a good comparison. Yeah, it's like, it reminds me of, you know, those geology things, uh, what are they called? Stalactites, <laughs> stalagmites. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's just a drop of water every five minutes or whatever. But over millions of years, it's it's formed this, you know, 20-foot stalagmite. Yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? Although, yeah, this is on a much bigger scale of billions of years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and planets. And planets, yeah. Okay, so we're now going to some very local moon news. This is where we talk about towns on the planet Earth called Moon. When I look for 
articles or news sources or stories to do with towns called moon i type into google like moon pennsylvania moon virginia and most of the time i'll get nothing but this week i found a story from a town called norfolk in virginia so it's not moon virginia unfortunately but sadly a moon bear has died in the virginia zoo a 14 year old moon bear called ty he had a severe infection and unfortunately passed away but had a nice long happy life at the zoo which he wouldn't have had in captivity from which he was rescued so the bear had a happy life it's just a shame it ended a bit earlier than it should have done but the takeaway from this is there's something called moon bears which I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, are they from the moon? I guess not. They are not, unfortunately. Moon bear is another name for the Asian black bear, which is a medium-sized bear that lives in trees. And it's called a moon bear because it's got this, like, white crescent on its chest. So imagine it's got, like, a bib, like a baby bib that's just kind of, like, had the tassels at the top cut off so it's just got a bit of a, a crescent moon shape on its chest and that's why it's called a moon bear so they live primarily in asia in the himalayas northern parts of india the korean peninsula northeast china far east russia and shikoku islands of japan and taiwan or as china would like to call it southeast china so I'm just looking at images of moon bears. They all look very happy. They do in those photos. <laughs> However, <laughs> unfortunately, there's a lot of Asian black bears and moon bears are captured a lot for bear bile farms, which I think is still legal in Korea. And, you know, these aphrodisiac medicines and Chinese medicines that involve bears and bear feet yeah. and bear paws and all yeah. these horrible things so unfortunately the asian black bears they're not extinct but they are on the most endangered list but they have actually become extinct in some countries like vietnam so they did live in vietnam but because of all this hunting and uh capturing for bear bile they have unfortunately become extinct so something that i did read about this is that asian black bears are very aggressive towards humans which is understandable because we <laughs> capture them and you would be and turn them into things you buy from a shop. So yes, I understand why they're aggressive, but also they're aggressive because they have to share their territory with tigers. So they've got to be on guard all the time. So I can understand why they are aggressive. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Something that I did learn about the black bears though, animals are significant in folklore and in Japanese culture, the moon bear is traditionally associated with the mountain spirit and Apparently, it received its white mark, the moon shape on the bear. It got that mark after it was given a silk-wrapped amulet from the mountain spirit, known as Yama no Kami, and it left the moon-shaped mark on the bear after this silk-wrapped amulet was removed, which is a bit like, you know, the crosses on donkeys. Apparently, according to folklore and religion and whatnot, donkeys got that cross after jesus rode into nazareth on the back of a donkey because there weren't any horses available so jesus rode in on the back of a donkey and then since then donkeys have a cross on their back but at the time jesus was alive and he hadn't been crucified then so i don't know why they had the cross on the back after that point on but he, he could tell the future so he knew what was going to happen yeah it might be folklore i didn't know donkeys had a cross on their back so i'm just quickly googling that as well yeah, apparently that's they have that as a tribute to stepping in in the time of need for Jesus. So he branded them with his religious symbol. <laughs> I don't don't think that was mentioned in the Bible. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't uh, yeah I wouldn't put too much store in it. Uh, and the same with the silk wrapped ambulant for the moon bears. But the photos that I have found of them, they do look very cute. Yeah, and they they do look happy. I've noticed more and more people, especially in my like, little Facebook bubble and social media bubble, the people do tend to be a lot more charitable at the moment. Like with the ongoing pandemic, people feel there's not a lot they can control. So a lot of people for like their birthdays, for example, would be like, okay, I'm raising money or instead of giving me a gift, give to this charity, that kind of thing. Yeah. And a lot of people are doing it for animals. So maybe that's something I should consider, like the Asian black bear or the moon bear endangered fund charity kind of thing there's got to be one that exists yeah no on that topic my wife says she'd just given some money to buy solar power lights for rabbits what <laughs> what, what? <laughs> 
But it turns out there's a, like a rabbit rescue place that people are adopting rabbits from this rabbit rescue place, but because they can only get out of work in the evenings or whatever, they need like lights on the drive So because they have to do pickups, they can't go and do home deliveries and stuff. So they need some solar-powered lights. So it's not the actual rabbits that, that were asking for the, these lights. It was the sort of uh, the, the car park of the, the rabbit rescue place. Okay, that's quite sweet. So yes, just to reinforce the people buying random stuff for animals and charitable stuff. Uh, I think the takeaway from this is be kinder to animals, especially moon bears. And so we're going to end the show on our ongoing feature, which is And the Next Moon Is. We've talked about the moons of Mars. We're now onto the moons of Jupiter, where we're talking about moons of the Himalaya group. And this moon is Ursa. So Ursa, there's not much to talk about this other than it's one of the latest moons of Jupiter to have been discovered. It was found in 2018, uh, discovered in May, but announced in, I think, June or September, so later on in the year. This was actually one of the first videos I made that got a lot of traction because I uh, made a video like two new moons of Jupiter have been discovered, put together the video as quickly as I could, put it onto Reddit and thankfully it got a lot of views so that put a nice little bump in the YouTube channel for me which is great and it's also one of the moons that was named during the Name Jupiter's Moon contest and it was named Ursa. Apparently this moon name came up 20 odd times so the bragging rights were split between a few people. This is the same competition that I got to name <laughs> You For Me and Phyla Frozeny for. So I got sole bragging rights for You For Me and I split the bragging rights with Phyla Frozeny, I believe. Whereas Ursa, it was split between Aaron Qua, the St. Savar High School, France, a, another school in British Columbia, Canada, and a four-year-old kid who sang a song about moons. So all of those people... <laughs> Got credit. And I know it's a case of Andy entered a competition for children and won. <laughs> so what? I got to name a moon. Doesn't matter. What really frustrates me about this is that Ursa is the Greek goddess of Dew, the daughter of Zeus and Selene. Selene being the goddess of moons. But there's another moon of Jupiter, Herse. H-E-R-S-E, which is also named after this. So you've got two names for one god, Ursa and Herse. I spent weeks going through <laughs> unique names and it, like one of the conditions was it has to be unique. So in the asteroid belt, there are so many asteroids named after Zeus's descendants and conquests and children and Zeus's family members. And it's so annoying because you'd find a perfect one like, oh, it, it, it's a child of Zeus, it's associated with a moon, and it ends in an E. Great, is this a candidate? Oh no, there's an asteroid in the asteroid belt that happens to share this name and it was discovered in the 50s and no one's ever heard of it. So I had like this colossal spreadsheet of every candidate that was possible for Zeus, of like Zeus's child, <laughs> conquest, family member, servant, whatever, a list of names. And then I had like columns of, does it end in an E? Does it end in an A? Has this name already been taken? And after like 500, I managed to get, I think, 16 out of it. <laughs> but if it turns out that, oh, it doesn't have to be unique, all that time was wasted. Yeah, you got to sing a song. Like a cute four-year-old <laughs> four singing a song. You can't turn that down. They could have called the moon, like, Mercury, and if it, if it was like, oh, they've sung a, sung a song now about Mercury, well, we have to just <laughs> rename Mercury. So do I need to recruit some children to help me uh, to, in the next moon naming contest? <laughs> All these kids being forced to sing a song by some weird Uncle Andy. <laughs> no, officer, you don't understand. I'm trying to get bragging rights yeah. for a moon of Neptune. <laughs> it's, it's very innocent, honestly. What do you mean I only get one phone call? Um, okay, what do you want to know about Ursa? The usual stuff. How big is it? And what's the, how far away is it? Okay, so it's 11.5 million kilometres from Jupiter. It's got a pretty low eccentricity, which means its orbit is nice and circular, and it takes 250 days to orbit Jupiter. But it's tiny. It's a tiny little pebble. It's three kilometres across. Oh, it's one of them. Yeah. yeah, it's a tiny, tiny little thing. That's not really a moon then, is it? Quite frankly. <laughs> well, this is one of the um, issues with moons of Jupiter. It's it's hypothesised that there's 600 moons of Jupiter 
or moons over a kilometre in diameter. And Scott Shepard himself is saying, like, there's no point naming them. I was like, well, where's the cutoff then? And if you, there's no point naming them, is it worth, you know, counting them as a moon? There needs to be a cutoff established at some point, which kind of, like, this adds fuel to the fire. I think Ursa is safe because it's got a name. It's like a puppy. It's like, you can't kill it if it's got a name. <laughs> Ah, oh, fine, we'll look after it now. Okay, so what do you think you'll call Ursa? Um, Andy's angry moon. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're angry. These four-year-old kids didn't put as much effort in as you did. And it sounds like the IAU didn't put as much effort as well, just double-checking stuff. Well, they're really fickle when it comes to this kind of thing, which is a bit frustrating, but... <laughs> And they're not answering my calls. Are they not? Oh, dear. No, I'm trying to get through so I can find some information about the Voyager imaging team and why they named the moons of Uranus what they did. Because the notes are going to be there in some kind of, like, assembly meeting. I just can't find them for the life of me online. I've emailed them, I've been phoning them to try and get some information, but thankfully I've been chatting to some other scientists who have given me some contacts, so I need to follow up on those. But the IAU have been a bit useless at the moment, which is, or not useless, but they're just ignoring my calls, damn it. It has been Christmas, to be fair. I've, no, this is like the other week when I was calling. Oh, right. Are they actually at work? Because they might all be working from home. Yeah, but surely you call the office and it should, like, give you a list of people you can contact. Or emailing them, it should, like, forward it to some kind of inbox where someone will pick it up and get back to you. Or an auto thing will come back saying, like, talk to these people. No, nothing. Get a four-year-old to sing a song of, <laughs> of what you want. Dear IAU... I need some information about the moons of Uranus and how they were named and why they called it what they did. Bum bum. That'll do. Yeah, do that. They will answer within five seconds. I'll pitch shift it so I sound like a four-year-old. <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. Dear IAU, I need some information about the moons of Uranus and how they were named and why they called it what they did. Ba -dum -bum. <laughs>